0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello,
1: I'm Rob Wolf and welcome to New Books in Science Fiction. This is the unhappy in its own way edition. Literature is full of families torn apart by tragedy. Death, war, crime. But what if the members of a family can't agree on the cause of the tragedy that divides them? In Mike Chen's new novel, Light Years from Home, sisters Cassie and Evie agree that their brother Jacob vanished 15 years ago. But did he run away so he could party to his heart's content, as Cassie believes? Or was he abducted by aliens, as Evie thinks? Their starkly different interpretations of the facts exacerbates the pain and tragedy of their brother's disappearance, pushing the family to the point of breaking. Mike Chen is the author of Here and Now and Then... A Beginning at the End, We Could Be Heroes, and The forthcoming Star Wars Brotherhood. This is his third time on the podcast, and he is with me now from his home in the Bay Area. Mike,
0: welcome back. Thanks for having me back, Rob.
1: Tell me, how have you been? I mean, you've been, like all of us, life has been different the last couple of years. So so how are you? And is this book going to be different? I know you had a book come out during the pandemic? And now, I don't know, are we, we don't know if we're at the end of it, but are you planning live events?
0: What's What's the deal? I do have a live event planned at the end of February, but it's an outdoor signing with my, my local indie bookstore. So everything is kind of being planned with one foot in, is it gonna change? <laughs> and in commitments are, they're really, actually just got asked to to be in a conference uh, out of state. So I've I've committed to San Francisco Writers Conference in July because July seems reasonable and it's local. So I don't have to worry about travel. I got asked to be in an out of state conference in August and I turned it well, I haven't turned it down yet, but like I talked about it with my wife and we're like, God, they need to know in like two weeks. And it's like, you know, there's so many logistics with traveling out of state including looking at their, you know, relative safety protocols and community. And it's, it's a weird year. I, I figured, I mean, this is going off on a tangent, but I remember when the pandemic, like really, like when we were in the thick of it in like middle of 2020, there was one epidemiologist that said like, these things typically have like a three year cycle before you can start to embrace coming back to, to normal again. And like, I can see that now, like the first year is kind of like what the hell is happening? Then you have last year, which is like the like where therapeutics and vaccinations start to take hold. This year is kind of like a transitionary year, where like we're trying to integrate all the lessons that that we've learned. So anyway, that's my <laughs> that's my spiel on <laughs> on the pandemic. Um uh, But yeah, like as an author, I'm getting invited to some live events. I have had live events tentative plans for them for January and February basically just get moved out a few months or canceled. And in the Bay Area, Charlie Jane Anders is a a good friend, and she has been trying to restart her Writers with Drinks program here. And they had, I think, two months where they did it. I think it was November and December. And then they canceled for January and February. And they just announced that they're back in March with all sorts of safety precautions. So it's a transitionary year. I've, I feel like everything's two steps forward, two steps back. Or one step back. <laughs> that math works better. A little,
1: yeah. It's sort of like who knows what, what the next step will be. I guess that's kind yeah. of what it feels like a little bit. Uh, well, let's dive in. Let's talk about light years from home. Mm-hmm. And maybe we can start with the Shao family. Yes. They've gone through hell after yeah. Jacob has disappeared, I mean, this was the book starts fifteen years after his disappearance on a camping trip. Mm-hmm. Tell us about the Shaw family and tell us about Cassie and Evie and their mom.
0: So the Shao family. One of the things that I really wanted to show with this book was how a single moment can really change the trajectory of people's lives, and and so fifteen years ago. They're on this camping trip. They're college-aged, you know, young adults. Cassie is, like, kind of middling in college. Evie's the younger sister who's, like, been the more studious one. Jacob is the complete disaster that just kind of lies and cheats his way through everything. And they're on this camping trip, and, like, the dad's trying to talk Jacob from, like, you know, making really bad choices. And they both disappear. And then a few days later... Their dad returns. Jacob is gone. And their dad is talking about, like, I swear we were on a spaceship. And there were aliens. There were all these things going on. And so that fundamentally changes the direction of this family. So Cass has this attitude of, like, if no one else is going to fix it, I am going to fix it. And Evie kind of has the same thing, except she thinks about it as, I'm going to fix it by going with my dad on, like, these UFO hunts. And we're going to find my brother. And their mom their mom wants to just move forward because that's the only way that she knows how to do it. And so you see these trajectories of where this family, where each member was originally heading, and then they've gone in like a completely other angle because this this disaster has happened to them and none of them know the truth, none of them know how to process it. So the story picks up in the present time when Jacob returns and they're not quite sure what to make of this.
1: All families confronting a tragedy have their challenges, and it seems to me one thing you're conveying is that the Shao family has trouble talking about their feelings, and so there's a lot bottled up.
0: There's that, but it's also because they can't agree on what happened. And I think that that creates the the biggest rift there. One of the biggest inspirations for this book was the Netflix series, The Haunting of Hill House. Like, when I watched that, I thought, I wish I wrote that and even it's it's different from the shirley jackson novel it's thematically the same and it's got a lot of the same character names but the the series itself is really profound and beautiful character examination of what happens when when a family fractures like what happened then what happens now and i was really i i get inspired by the media that I'm watching or reading at the time. And I saw that and I thought, I really wish I wrote that. So I, uh, I combined that with a short story that I have been n- needling around with that never went anywhere and like the tone of X files. And that's where this came from.
1: I don't think it's too much of a spoiler because really right at the beginning, you know, you're telling the story through the perspective of the three siblings. So we get mm-hmm. into Jacob's head pretty early in the book. Right. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, even though Cassie and Evie disagree about what happened, the reader gets to to learn, assuming Jacob is a reliable narrator, his version. Right. So what was what's his version?
0: Well, it was really important to ground the story in Jacob's point of view and then show Evie and Cassie in their points of view deconstructing it. And each has a very plausible explanation of what they're interpreting. So with Jacob's point of view, it the story opens with Jacob's experience of being on a spaceship in the middle of this intergalactic war and he's escaping from and, and he's escaping with the vital intel on on how he can win the war. And so that's the only space opera scene like really in there. I, I, I joke that the book is 90% family drama, 10% space opera, but the space opera is what drives all of the family drama. From what I can glean from like the people who did not like the book, it's because they wanted more space opera and that's yeah, more power to you. I did not write that. I did not intend to write that. So it's totally okay. But so the space opera is put at the front Because I felt otherwise it would feel very abstract. You know, you would have the two sisters talking about, like, I think it's this. No, I think it's this. You would have Jacob, in Jacob's perspective, hunting for this object that is kind of like the the goal of, of his mission. But without that one scene of, this is him on this ship. These things are happening. There's explosions. Power is failing. All this stuff. Without that, it wouldn't feel very real. So... I thought it was very important that we experience things through Jacob's eyes. And then as you see the sisters interpreting it, then you start to decide, like, who is the unreliable perspective here? Why is Jacob
1: so engaged and invested in this life in space that he is recounting? Because the family's broken when he leaves Mm -hmm. and he's very committed to, you know, what initially is. According to him, he was just lifted up and was among strangers then, you know, from Earth into this new world. And he's very committed to it, even though he must know he's left behind loved ones who don't really have a explanation for what happened.
0: This is something that I often think about with science fiction, because the stories of space opera or intergalactic conflict or whatever, when you have like someone who is plucked out of their menial existence and swept off into you know, a much bigger conflict. It is riffing off of that. But from a real personality perspective, you see that Jacob, he's just kind of a screw up. He's like a high school athlete that got by on his charm and his, you know, his athletic ability and cheating off of his sister. So he doesn't have a lot of direction. And for someone like that, I think like a real world analog is like, you know, if someone doesn't have a lot of direction and then like, you know, they wind up going on a peace corps or something like that where their complete worldview changes and they find something to commit to because they finally understand that the world is bigger than what they care about. And, And in this case, this is Jacob seeing a galaxy at war. And I think about like, you know, even from like the 80s, something like The Last Starfighter. Or, or something like that, where, you know, someone is plucked from earth and put into something sort of like larger conflict, would that make your concerns on earth just disappear? And I would think for some people, they would be like, I miss my family too much. But other people would be like, holy crap, there's so much more out here. And I have a chance to make a difference. And that's really what Jacob's perspective is. Their mother
1: is an interesting character. One thing she says to them at various times is, how are you going to fix it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's sort of a phrase she has. And it's interesting to note, as my cat starts wheezing, are you okay? He's sitting on my lap. Gonna, <laughs> we can noise for a second. Are you going to make noise? He sometimes gets like, it's almost like asthmatic. but We I don't have know what,
0: four cats. So I totally understand like the sudden like wheezing or barfing. Yeah, right.
1: Well, no barfing, please. Not here. Are you going to go? Why don't you leave and you can go somewhere else? There you go. Okay. So she says, how are you going to fix it? And one thing that's very interesting is that the siblings, although they all are very different and divided in some ways at various points in the book, they actually share it seems to me, they've absorbed that advice. Uh, how are you going to fix mm-hmm, yeah. it? They are all determined to fix something in their lives, and they share this kind of similar determination and single, single-minded single focus. I mean, they're very disciplined. It's just that when they're opposed to each other, as the sisters are, then they're disciplined. Yeah. Then it, it just makes their conflict that much more intense, I think.
0: Yeah, it's the... It's one of those things that I also wanted to show how children of the same parents can absorb their upbringing in completely different ways, like completely different interpretations. So what you have with Cass, Cass's version of fixing it is keeping the family from breaking. Evie's version of fixing it is I'm going to find my missing brother. And Jacob's version of fixing it is this galaxy is at war and I'm going to help stop it. So it's the same motivation just through completely different lenses. And I I always thought that to be really interesting. I know so many sibling pairs or trios or whoever where they are completely different. But when you see them around their parents, you see elements of them overlapping. And, And the other thing that, I, I think about a lot with my own family is how when you have adult children get back together with their family, they revert to being 17 or whatever, like the the, the, the jokes and the pettiness and everything like it, it all comes back. and my counselor once explained like I forget what the technical term is for that, but like that's very much a theme about like how you're very influenced by your your surroundings so i wanted to kind of play off of that where we like these these sisters like they don't really talk to each other that much and this their brother like they have not seen their brother but when they are back together all of their their bad habits with each other come rushing back but with the life experience of where they are now and i thought that's a really fun dichotomy to play with
1: so you've kind of created a niche for yourself. You write about families a lot, nuclear families, and it seems like there's a theme of families being pulled apart by some science fictional element, you know, whether it's time travel, which was here and now and then, or in this case, there's an interstellar war going on. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. You you like to write about family and, and
0: homes. I really like to examine relationships and when you know most people say relationships they think of like romantic relationships but i i I like to think of all facets of interpersonal relationships and i i love science fiction the the home office that i am in is just littered with science fiction (laughs) merchandise so it's it's a huge part of me and i've always liked examining the characters in these fantastical situations because i think like it's so extreme and so different that a lot of stories just kind of skip over that extreme element of it. It's war or it's space travel or it's time travel or things that would really mess with your head. And there's so much room to play with on a character level that like, if you just remove the end of the galaxy, end of the world, end of time, (laughs) you know, like those types of stakes, if you take those away and you examine what's really happening on a character level, there's a lot of interesting stuff to play with because it would cause so many feelings to surface i would think like by by just being put in the most extreme of circumstances so i I keep going back to that i think that's probably i don't think i'm skilled enough of an action writer that i couldn't write a pure giant epic fantasy or epic space opera or whatever and and like my upcoming star wars book there's lightsaber fights and there's chases and stuff like that but it's a very character focused like it's you're in obi-wan's head you're in anakin's head and there is a clear arc about like they're trying to figure out who they are as people so it's i think very much still on my you know so-called brand and
1: your characters are usually either drawn to home or maybe they're trying to get away from home
0: yeah my parents have never brought that up to me when when they've, they've talked to when they, because they read it. Uh, they read my books. And I don't think they've ever picked up on my interpretations that found family is typically better than blood family. <laughs> so I'll leave that. But I, I mean, I do. You can probably tell a lot about my upbringing and my worldview by the fact that I keep going back to that. And it's not necessarily intentional. I, I realized, actually, when I was doing publicity for my third book, We Could Be Heroes, which is about a superhero and a supervillain who discovered that they're better off as best friends rather than enemies. And you get into their past and you get into the families that they came from and they left behind. And I realized that the recurring themes in my books are how memory shapes identity and how chosen family shapes identity. (laughs) So even when I try to consciously move away from that, I think I keep falling back into it. So, you know, it's just part of who I am. Well, I remember you telling me when we
1: first met virtually, you know, in an interview about Here and Now and Then, which was your debut. If I remember right, you were talking about how it was hard for you initially to sell the book because people didn't know how to classify the book. It wasn't mm-hmm. yeah. science fictional enough for a science fiction publisher, and it wasn't mainstream literature enough for a mainstream publisher. But that doesn't seem to be a problem for you
0: anymore. Yeah. I I think part of it too is the market has really, really shifted. I mean, so many of the authors you have on your podcast are kind of in this character driven space. And I think like there's, there's so much more room for it now than there was. I mean, when I was on sub uh, on sub is when your agent tries to sell your manuscript to a publisher. So I was on sub from 2015 to 2017. Typically, being on sub, you have like a window of about like six to eight months, but we kept it open for like two years because we kept getting all these near misses. Where where the the creative team was really excited about it, and then the business side would be like, "Well, we're not quite sure how to sell that." But now, you know, there's just so much more of like this willingness to lean into character against a really science fiction or fantasy backdrop. So I, I think like the market has changed for that, and I, I credit a lot of it to. Actually, the rise of streaming services, because there's a lot more variety in, in what we see. You know, We have comic TV shows like WandaVision now, which are just character examinations about trauma or the adaptation of Station Eleven. You, you have things like that that I don't think would have existed before the streaming era when there were so many outlets willing to experiment with tone and character and, and move away from, from formulaic stuff that we've seen so much already. So, yeah, I, I don't think I would have the success that I did if this was like 10 years ago, but I think there's really a market and an appetite for that now. It's almost like
1: you have your own subgenre though it's like familial science fiction or something <laughs>
0: yeah I I've, I told myself when my debut came out and everyone was asking like will you write a sequel or another time travel novel and I was like I don't want to be the the time travel guy so I made a conscious choice that I want to basically hit every sci-fi subgenre that I really love so I it's wherever a, a good story fits in I mean so it's been Time travel, post-apocalyptic, superhero. I'd say this one's a little bit of space opera and also a little bit of like X-Files, which I, both, I love both of those. And then my next one is going to be vampires. So <laughs> I'm just trying to go through each of these before I start repeating myself.
1: That's great. And you've been very prolific, too. So are you under contract? Usually you have a deadline or is this just the pace at which you (laughs) go? Or is the deadline driving you?
0: No, no, this is not the pace at which I I go. I think especially during the pandemic. So my wife has a chronic condition. So we've been extremely cautious, which means one full year of remote kindergarten and half a year of homeschool first grade, which is a little different from its Partially remote, but partially, like, parent-driven. It's it's really difficult and completely terrible. <laughs> and somehow I've, I've managed to, to keep writing through this. And it's strictly because I have contracts. And I have contracts and the ideas are there. So it, I've actually found that during this, the creative process has not gotten any worse. It's purely a time and energy. Uh, you know, it's it's a matter of, like, can I squeeze it in? Because... I find that writing, I mean, I'm I'm one of those people that I would be writing like fan fiction or whatever, if I wasn't getting published, I would be writing short stories and trying to sell those because it's very cathartic for me. It's very relaxing. It's nice to just kind of like play around with the worlds in my head. So I just need like the physical energy and time to do. (laughs) But yeah, so the, the amount of, deadlines that i've been hitting is is purely contractual like i i think like at some point i should take a break
1: <laughs> i find the less time i have sometimes the more productive i am
0: yeah yeah i i think like you know there's probably going to be a point where when i hit a lull between so with my star wars book the offer came in last may and i was working on my vampire book and i was like i don't know if i can do both of these at the same time because Star Wars books have an extreme, extreme turnaround, but my wife, you know, she's also a big Star Wars fan, and she knew how what an opportunity this was for me, especially because it's focusing on like my favorite era of Star Wars, which is like the prequel Clone Wars era, and so she was, she just said like, we'll make it work, we'll we'll figure something out, but you you need to do this. It, it was really one of those things too, where like you know, she would. Even if we were having a rough time with parenting, she'd be like, OK, you need to go sit down tonight and and write. And that's totally cool. You know, don't worry about it. So it, it's been a release. As pressure intensive as it was, like, it's definitely been a release. It's, it's been a way of just kind of resetting my brain. I, I enjoy it far more than doing homeschool.
1: You've mentioned the Star Wars project, so why don't you talk a little bit about that? How, how is it different? You're working in a pre-existing universe and it's mm-hmm. intellectual property. So, so how does that work? I mean, they come to you with an idea and they say, "Can you do this?" Or you suggest things?
0: Kind of. Yeah, it's 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 an iterative process. They they came to me with, or they came to my agent with, uh, they said like. These are, this is the time period that we want. These are the characters we want to focus on. This is the thematic arc that we want to use. Please come up with a pitch for it. And if we're happy with the pitch, then you know we'll move forward. So I came up with a pitch really fast. I was very excited to do that. And once the basic pitch was accepted, we expanded like a two-page pitch to... I wound up, like, the final version of the synopsis was, I think, about 25,000 words. And it had, for, to, to put that into scope for listeners, one of my novels is usually about 90 to 100,000 words. So it was about the quarter of a novel. And there were like full on speeches and dialogue and like descriptions and things like basically anything that my brain would pop up with that I thought like I'm probably going to use this. I put it in there while I was writing it. And we iterated that, I think, four or five times over about two months with the idea that, I mean, they they know how to get this process done. Like they've done so many of these books and they were just like the the bigger and more detailed you make the synopsis the easier it will be to write. And I found like the biggest difference with my books, the first two drafts are very light. They're very skeletal. And there's a lot of like discovery process in there. Like I'm trying, like with, with Light Years From Home, I knew the siblings were going to be around college age. I knew that they were going to be like personality opposed to each other but I didn't really know who they were until I've been working with them for a few months. And then their personalities really start to surface and became easy to say like, no, Evie wouldn't say this, or yes, Cass would say this. And it was easy to evolve them because at that point I'm like, I knew which parts of their personalities overlapped and which parts of their personalities were like opposite. So if, if I was turning the dial up on, Cass is going to be the one who swears and smokes, then Evie is not going to do that because she subconsciously opposes her sister. You know, things like that. With Star Wars, I know the world. Like, I know so much mundane detail about that universe. I know the voices for Obi-Wan and Anakin. So it was very easy. I mean, it's like writing fan fiction. It's, It's writing fan fiction with corporate guidance. So it was really easy to just... I remember the first day that I, like, I sat down to write the first few chapters and I was like, I wrote almost 6,000 words in like two or three hours. I'm like, they weren't, they weren't all good. Like I had to go back and revise them, but like it flowed so easily compared to writing my own stuff where it's like, I'm really just kind of like bumping around in the dark, trying to figure out who these characters are at that first pass. So that was the big difference with it. It's like word count was actually really easy to hit um uh, revising was was really easy to do. Plotting was all really easy to do because it, it just feels like fan fiction, which is a lot of fun to do. <laughs> I, it's funny, though, when
1: you say corporate, well, you didn't say corporate overlords. But, you know, I'm thinking of like the cliched image of a creative who's being told, no, you can't. You know, the, the law legal department's coming down saying you can't do that. But here it's sort of like <laughs> it sounds like a very well-oiled machine. I mean, it's been around a long time
0: yeah they know what to do and i think they they regularly schedule four to five books a year so there is like a constant rolling editorial and like and everything has to sync up too and they're playing with like this like this internal timeline of well now with the high republic it's probably like 200 years in like their universe's history so they have to everything has to line up so they they have you know dedicated people to try to say like you, you can do this, you can't do this, this has to be planted for earlier. And that, that's how, that's the only way that like, you could practically do something like what they do. So like when I say corporate guidance, like there is no snark or maliciousness at all. It's like, it's it's purely like I am being contracted to create a, a, a sliver of time for the for this universe. And I am so happy to do it because it's fun. But it, it's like, I am, It's intellectual property. I am doing a job requested of me as opposed to like my original novels where I am like building everything from the ground up. It's just it's a completely different process. So when is the Star Wars book coming out? Star Wars Brotherhood comes out on May 10th.
1: And then you also mentioned a
0: vampire book. So what's what's the status (laughs) there? What's going on? I'm in the middle of revising it with the target of finishing this revision in about three weeks and making that hopefully very close to the final to the final version of it. It's called Vampire Weekend and it is scheduled for release release next January, though I've heard the January, February, March window, but probably next January.
1: And what's the Mike Chen twist on Vampires?
0: I was an angsty teen who read a lot of Anne Rice and listened to a lot of Depeche Mode and The Cure. So I was all about punk and indie music and goth aesthetics and everything like that. I was a very disaffected suburban Asian teen. And I feel like this book, outside of like the science fiction part of my interests like really encapsulates a lot of who i was growing up so uh, vampire weekend is about a chinese-american vampire named louise who got turned in the early 70s at an iggy pop show and she spends her immortality basically not resolving any of her intergenerational damage from her (laughs) from her culture clash uh, upbringing, but instead playing in bands and going to shows, that's what she does. And she, in the present day, encounters a, a long lost relative who asks her, can she teach him, a, a, young, a teenage boy named Ian, can she teach him how to play guitar? And also, can she turn his dying mom into a vampire to save her? There's other stuff in there about uh, the, the blood source because I try to approach vampires like I do with my other science fiction or fantasy worlds with a real grounded approach. I wanted to make it like, if this was real, like how would it work? And so I look at vampirism as it's purely, it's like a viral thing that keeps the body going. So the caloric intake is basically through blood. So like practically, how does that work? Well, it's not like you're getting a lot of calories from blood. So it's basically keeping it going keeping your primary organs going like brain heart lungs other things like digestive system shut down Um, sexual organs shut down so these people live this kind of like persistent existence without a lot of the things that bring us joy and there's a lot of interesting stuff to, to play with that and on a community level these vampires know that like Everyone has smartphones now. There's you know, video surveillance dating back decades. You know, There's all this stuff. So secrecy is, is prime. So most of the vampires, they get their blood source from, from donors, from blood bags, from like these indirect ways that do not involve murder. And, and like this highly encouraged, like, do not murder humans. <laughs> so there's an entire world-building thread through there about how this community is built on day-to-day sustenance. Which is an equity issue, so there's there's themes of that as well. and uh, one of the the driving plot points is that blood bag supplies are actually drying up, and they don't know what to do about that. so those two things are woven together and at its core it's about there are two main themes running through there about identity and what you were brought up with versus who you should be, who you want to be. And then on a greater world-building perspective, there's a lot of talk about equity of data, equity of access, all in metaphorical form of Bloods and Vampires. <laughs> and there's a lot of punk rock talk in there too. There's, there's scenes with bands and at venues and the, the power of art over the crappy family that, you, that brought you up. Well, you got me at the
1: lack of joy. I mean, you took away sex and food, really. So that's rough.
0: Yeah, I think there's a, one of my favorite exchanges in the book is uh, when Louise is talking with like one of the few people that she's revealed her true nature to. And he says, like, well, that's really kind of depressing. And she's like, you really think so? <laughs> you know, but, but, like, I mean, he has a point. And, and, and I think, like, you know, with all science fiction backdrops, it can be a metaphor for something. And in this case, the vampirism really is a metaphor for maturity. Because, like, the people who, in this lifestyle, and you see this a lot in vampire fiction, where they don't really evolve out of the era that they were turned in you know like there was always like one foot of them in there and and a lot of us like we don't really do that with our feelings our relationships our taste in pop culture (laughs) so there's a lot of thematic resonance with that but it's just it's vampires so what are your parents going to think of that
1: (laughs) if there's like a uh...
0: i i (laughs) i'm kind of bracing myself for that one (laughs) Uh, yeah, that, that, that's, that's going to be interesting. Like, I don't know if they're going to pick up on, I've tried to practically disguise some of my <clears throat> more bitter viewpoints. <laughs> but We'll see what they, what happens with that.
1: So did you experience growing up a cultural divide between family culture and the environment oh, you yeah. were growing up in?
0: Yeah. I, I'd say i spent a lot of therapy in my twenties and thirties. I'm 43. <laughs> I'd say like, I spent probably like good, Ten or fifteen years in therapy, like unpacking that, and I think it's it's really, really common for the first I guess like American generation or the first western generation where where the parents have immigrated and it's one of those things where I understand why my parents raised me the way they were, but they they came with the set of values that were more akin to where, where they came from. And that created a lot of searching, a lot of searching, a lot of unhappiness, a lot of feeling not quite right, no matter where I was. And I can see now after years of therapy that so many of my decisions were based on that, uh, were based on like a, a, dis- a conscious decision to like, if I can't feel comfortable with my family i'm going to find a subculture that i feel comfortable with vampires indie music <laughs> science fiction it's been uh, it'll be interesting to see how my parents take
1: it <laughs> well thank you so much for giving us a preview of that's but that's next year so people will be yeah next january yeah, excellent
0: yeah so our world has to survive first yeah and
1: what do you think the prospects of that are I know you have a young, a young daughter, so you're optimistic, I'm sure.
0: Um, I don't know if I'm optimistic, but I mean, I was just telling my wife that like as hard as things are right now, like if you if you think about like where we are now compared to where we were like one year ago compared to where we were two years ago. It's like we have so much more like scientific and medical advancements. We have so much more understanding. Uh, I have an engineering degree, so I tend to break down everything in the world like analytically and with a family medical condition and a young daughter who couldn't get vaccinated until December, like I've learned so much about this stupid disease that I wish I I wish I didn't know all this stuff. But like because I know it now, like scientists know it like billion times more than me. And they've done a lot of work to this. so I I really feel like a combination of quickly moving science and really smart people that no matter what we argue about on Twitter, I think we're in a better place. And I think like the idea of a three-year window seems to make sense for things. Then
1: you never know what the
0: next pandemic or issue will be yeah i think that's one of the problems is like i see a lot of the scientists i follow on twitter are saying that like what we're learning now can be applied for the future if we just provide like the, the guidance and the money to do it and i think that's probably like the biggest issue facing us right now well and
1: it's people you know knowledge is one thing but if people refuse to believe it there's that yeah. i mean the mo- i just saw don't look up you know if people aren't going to look up when the comet's coming what are you going to do
0: yeah, I, I think like when people ask me about, so my second book was A Beginning at the End. That was my post-pandemic book. And that came out in January, 2020. And now people will ask me like, what did you get right? Or "Or like, what did you feel like you predicted right? And what do you feel like came out different? And I say, you can tell my book is science fiction because people trust scientists and there's competent government response in my book, <laughs> which is, there." our our last few years show a lot of bad shit everywhere.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, well, let's end on a positive note.
0: It's very exciting
1: <laughs> you have a, a a new book out and you have another one coming out soon and another one coming out another another and another. That's your next title. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. This has been really fun.
0: Of course, um I would love to come back and talk vampires in a year.
1: <laughs> okay. We have a date. That'll be excellent. Sounds good. Uh, I've been talking to Mike Chen about Light Years From Home, which came out in January from Mira Books. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the show if you don't already. And please consider leaving a review or maybe even five stars if you're feeling generous. Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com composed our theme music. I'm Rob Wolf and I edit the show. Marshall Poe is editor and founder of the New Books Network. And Leanne Wilson is the co-editor. And I hope everyone's year is going smoothly so far. And uh, don't forget to buy a few books. Thanks.